art on your sleeve. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Art On Your Sleeve, a podcast about art, design and music. In this episode, I interview David Storey, a graphic designer and creative director whose work was principally in the late 1970s in the post-punk era, but through the 1980s via the two-tone label for which he designed a lot of material, including the whole two-tone look. And then into the 90s and then more recently, He's now a fine artist based on the south coast of England and I went to his studio to to spend an hour with him just looking back at his um, prolific collection of record sleeves. Uh, This episode is a supplement to an issue for Classic Pop magazine, issue 76 for July-August 2022. Um, I probably don't need to go into any more detail here because it's a quite expansive interview with lots of music, so enjoy it. And if you need any more information, visit my website at softoctopus.co.uk and check out the show notes under the podcast section. Thanks for listening. My first job out of art college was working for Rocket Records, Elton John's label. Right. Um, and the first album I worked on was, was Greatest Hits, yeah. But I did do um, a couple of singles sleeves before that, uh, in, including a Don't Go Breaking My Heart, which was Kiki D and Elton John, which went to number one. So it was a, a wonderful way to kick off. Wow, and such a thrill to see, as it's such a young designer, to, to see your artwork you know, in Woolworths and all the record shops. And it was, it was. It was very surreal at the time, yeah. So were you a student then? Had you just qualified or were you still at university? Yeah, I, from school, I, I went to school in West Cumbria, but um, I got accepted by Hornsey College of Art, as it was then called, in London, um, for my foundation. So I went there in the early 70s and went from there to the graphics course. Uh, so I did a BA honours. In fact, it was called... Um, art and design in those days so it was a, a degree course in art and design because pre-computer you were presumably learning letterpress and all the pmt stuff yeah, and... it was a fantastic course because we would literally do life drawing in the morning and then uh, letterpress in the afternoon so it was a, it was a wonderful crazy mix of things that, which doesn't exist anymore mm. of course yeah but uh, yeah it was well well before computers so when was that sort of around the punk time? Was that late, mid yeah. to late seventies? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, if you if you think that punk was probably really getting underway around about seventy six, that's when I was graduating and joining Elton John's label. Right. Were you a young punk? Uh, <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I really loved the punk music, um, but I was at that time I was more into things like Captain Beefheart and and uh, such what you might call sort of alternative. Music. I mean, I, I was a big punk fan and I did go to punk gigs and so on. Following Rocket, so how long were you at Rocket for? Uh, I, was at Ro- I was at Rocket for about six, six months or nine months and that was, it was a, stepping st- a wonderful stepping stone to get me into Chrysalis Records, which at that time was the label. It was yeah. a ph- phenomenally successful label. 
Um, and I started there in 1979. And in fact, the week that I started there was the week that they signed a special. So it was a fantastic right. uh, coincidence for me yeah. that I started there as a sleeve designer as the specials and two-tone were, were kind of signed to the label. Yeah, because that was such a, a major pop movement, wasn't it? That whole scene just seemed to... It pushed punk out of the way completely and it became its own thing. Yeah, well, it, it was a yeah, it was a wonderful fusion of sort of punk and ska, mm. but it, and it had this wonderful kind of uh, mix of it was had a dance feel, but it had very serious political messages yeah. aligned to it as well. So it was a wonderful fusion of all these different things, and of course, um, as well as the the graphics, there was the the fashions. Um, uh, and the, the, even its own had it even had its own dance style and so on. So yeah. it, was a, it was a wonderful thing to be a part of. Yeah. So was that when you worked on the? Because it's nineteen eighty. Then was that when you? I've got listed here. You did the split ends compilation, beginning of the ends. Was that? that yeah. Time? Yeah. I mean, we were in. There was in the art department of Chrysalis Records was basically myself and my friend John Sims, or John Teflon Sims, to give him his, his, <laughs> his full name. Um, and we were incredibly busy because the label was so successful, as well as working on all of the things that we loved, like the two-tone stuff, for example, and Blondie. Um, we had all the other uh, bands to work on, so we, you know, we put in some serious shifts at that time. And, mm. and Split Ends uh, were on the label and um, all sorts of other bands like Ice House and then there were some heavy metal bands like UFO um, Leo Sayer was on the label Jethro Tull Jethro Tull had been the, the big starting point for the label um, he was slightly on the wane uh, when I joined but I, he was one of the, the, the best people I worked with there uh, Ian, Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull mm -hmm. he was, was great to work with was an amazing person so he was very involved in the creative process as well yeah, he was like most of the artists in those days. They were in and out of the art department keeping an eye on, on what we did because, I, as if I understood it correctly, when the contracts in those days that artists had meant that they had, had approval over what was done in terms of their, yeah. their graphics. I, I don't think that exists anymore, but um, in those days they were all in and out, so it was wonderful mm -hmm. meeting them all and working with them all. That was around 1980, and then that was so that was when the two tone stuff started. And was was Selector the first band that you worked with, or was it? No, the very first. Well, yes, yeah, sorry, the very first release was a single, which was Gangsters, which was the specials, yeah. backed by ooh, the Selector, and I think the track was called the Selector as well. So it was the Selector by the Selector, um, and then John and I were mainly working on specials and selector stuff for the next sort of 12 months but of course they signed other bands like Madness, The Beat, uh, The Body Snatchers the, yeah. we were, and we were working on all that material as well. It was fantastically um, you know uh, inspiring time to be involved. In, with, with it. What I loved about that stuff uh, I mean I was 
I wasn't at art school myself, that was a bit before me, but what I loved about my brother collected all that stuff was the, the sort of individual graphic identities that each of the bands had within the two-tone yes. brand. So the two-tone, yes. it was all very visually identifiable. And, yeah. But you had Bad Manners with the little cartoon of Buster Blood Vessel and the specials with the... Yeah. the um, the, what was the, his name? Well, the, Walt yes, that's the, right. The, it was based man. on Peter yeah. Tosh, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a photograph of Peter Tosh. All, all of the um, all of the two tone graphics went through the brain of um, Jerry Dammers, who was the organ player, the keyboard player for the specials, and he was the, if you like, the author of all of that um, material. Uh, and John and I was, were, would execute what he had in his head. So he might wander in with the photograph of Peter Tosh, for example, or, and some old albums that he'd found in a second-hand um, shop, and we would, uh, you know, work with him to extract what it was in the back of his head and make it into a real thing mm. that could be manufactured and, and printed. Um, but he, you know, he, he... I mean, I still work with him. I'm still in contact with him today and he's still doing wonderful stuff he's, he's, he's primarily a fine artist now although he, oh. he earns a crust as a DJ um, but uh, yeah I mean all, all of the the, the, the the sort of important imagery uh, that was associated with two-tone essentially came out of his head right so did you develop those did you draw the the two-tone man and the beat woman yeah, and the yeah, I mean, John. I remember John Sims um, actually physically drawing some of those things, but again, they were all based on Jerry's sketches, you see. Um, but the way uh, John and I were a, a, a really good team because he uh, was a fantastic, what you might call, Swiss-style typographer. He, right. was, he was absolutely hot at doing very simple bold typography in a, in a way that looked like it had been done 20 years earlier and I was mainly involved in, in the imagery so I spent a lot of time at this crazy um, uh, photo library that was just down the road from us called Barnaby's Picture Library and they had a millions of photographs that had been collected in the 60s, 50s and 60s and early 70s and uh, so a lot of the ideas we got were, were basically uh, using found, found bits and pieces, uh, and then John and I, with under Jerry's direction, would put the things together. Right, and is that where the uh, the cover for the specials Ghost Town came from? Yes, that that uh, is a good example. That was a an old postcard that I found in Barnaby's Picture Library, um, along with an, a load of other images, and when. Um, John and I were showing them to Jerry. He just picked that one out straight away. Said, "That's the, that's it. That's the one." It just seemed perfect somehow, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. That sort of doom. Those doom laden chords really, you know, fit with it. Looking at that whole period of, of work, that a lot of it is uncredited, so your your name doesn't actually appear on it. There's only yeah. there's very few that actually have your design credit on it. So, yeah. of that period, which which are your favourite particular pieces that might not even be credited to you? Uh, well, certainly Ghost Ghost Town is one of the things that I'm particularly proud of being involved with. You know, albeit in a small way, it, it's, it's wonderful. But. Um, 
this is probably the Rico stuff. Rico was the trombone player out of the specials, and um, I got to I had the privilege of designing his all his sleeves, uh, apart from the ones that he'd done earlier when he was on, signed to Island Records. So I did all his single sleeves and three album covers, I think, right. for, for Rico. And it was a real privilege to to work with him. Uh, again, Jerry Jerry was the sort of what you might call the art creative director on those projects, um, but they uh, had a completely different look and feel to the other two tone material. Sort of around that same period, so well, in fact, 1982, so a year a year later. That was you mentioned Ice House earlier. That feels very different because it went from that very bold graphic black and white to very painterly and colourful. Um, was yeah. that an early example of your fine arts? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, with Ice House, I got an opportunity to to paint some of the covers, which was really nice. But but also that coincided with a, a sort of a a shift in what was happening around me. So for example, Spandau Ballet were, were a very big act on the label. Um, and you know, David Band and Graham Smith were producing the graphics for them. And I was sort of quite influenced by that look and feel, that quite what you might call glamorous feel. Um, and I felt that probably, you know, the Ice House material warranted more of that kind of a look and feel than a than a, than a, you know, the sort of a two-tone look and feel, which was a bit more gritty. Yeah. Um, so that's where that came from. Yeah, the two-tone stuff felt like it was more paying homage to designs of the past, whereas the, the stuff for Ice House definitely feels very of its time as the 1980s and yeah. all the angular graphics and stripes and dots and things. Well, you're absolutely right. And, of course, the two-tone thing um, was deliberately made to look homespun. You know, I mean, yeah. Jerry would, Jerry Damas would um, come down very hard on John and I if we tried to influence, if, if we tried to introduce any sort of design <laughs> embellishments, if you like, it, they would be immediately voted out. Yeah. Um, so that's why that looks so gritty and so consistent. You mm. know, a lot of these, these sort of design schemes um, and aren't consistent because they, the other people are involved in them or they, they. Um, you know they lose they lose direction, but because Jerry oversaw the whole lot, it had this lovely consistency right the way through. Sounds like the perfect art director to work with. His vision sounds absolutely spot on. Yeah, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, he was very. He won't mind me saying that he was very difficult. It could, sorry, he could be very difficult, but only because not only in a nice way. I always had a smile on his face, but he was a, completely obsessed with getting everything right, and that might involve with the smallest. Um, thing like a, for example a button badge you know we might have to redo that three or four times until it was exactly right so uh, that obviously could be very frustrating especially if you were busy on a number of other projects but at the same it was always counterbalanced by the you know the joy and the fun of and the honor of, of working mm. with him on that amazing material Buster, he sold the heat with a rock steady beat. An earthquake is erupting, but not in Orange Street. And 
just to jump back oh no in fact it is still around this period so madness by this point were huge they'd gone from being you know a a kind of low-key band on two-tone being signed to a major label and becoming you know front front cover of smash hits and jackie magazine yeah what um involvement did they because that there were eight of them weren't there in the band were all eight of them involved in the creative process as well yeah i mean they were only on two-tone briefly but i do for one record for one single actually is that the Um, prince yeah yeah backed with madness i think yeah so yeah um, but I do remember them all coming into the art department, and the art department was, was probably only twice the size of this room, so it it um, it did feel pretty packed with mm. them all. Um, yeah, but uh, sad. we were very sad when they chose to move to Stiff Records. It was a real shame. Yeah. In 1983, just um, coming forward one year, you did work with Iggy Pop, another pop yes. icon or punk icon or post-punk icon. Yes. I, I Sadly, I never got the chance to meet oh. Iggy. Um, but the, the, reason that, the reason why we were designing his covers, or I, did, or I designed his cover, was that um, uh, Blondie were, were huge on the label and hugely successful, you know, generating a huge amount of revenue for the label. And they wanted to set up a label that was in a way like Two Turn, uh, called Animal Records, right. and the, the um, you know the managing director and, and co uh, agreed to that, and this label was set up Animal Records, and that was the Gun Club, Iggy Pop. There's a couple of other ones I can't remember what they were now, but anyway, we we got a while, there was Wild Style, the the rappers, the early rappers, um, which again I got to do a singles cover for them I think but they were all on Animal Records and right. we never got we got to meet um, uh, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein were, were in quite a lot wow. so we got to see them quite a lot but we never got to meet I never got to meet Iggy Pop oh. or the Gun Club people and on, on that Iggy Pop there's a painting on the back is that your early artwork no. that's not credited no, so I wasn't sure I, I, no I like the, I can see it on your iPad I, I like that painting but I can't remember who did it it must have been Either Iggy or, or a friend of Iggy's would be right. my guess, so, which is often would often happen. Uh, uh, bands would come in and they would have a carry in the carrier bag. They'd have a painting <laughs> that somebody done, and you know, and it was a question of trying to make something out of it. So the the, the the situation with uh, Blondie, what what was did you work on the singles or is it just advertising collateral? And yeah, we uh, we got to work on when Debbie Harry went solo. We got to work on the album covers, but before that, we only got to work on the singles covers. The Ameri- the, the American company did the um, the album covers. Uh, uh, we, they were based in Los Angeles, so they would do the album covers and we would do the singles. But we would also do all the pop pop videos, because that was the early days of pop videos. Mm. And um, they all used to go through the art department, actually, but they were handled by a guy called Peter Wagg. Um, 
and wherever possible we would try and coordinate the look and feel of the video with the, the covers and the posters and things that we were producing at the time. So which yeah. singles were they? Can you remember which specifically the, which? Yeah, there were, well there was, there was quite a lot of them but the ones that uh, came in my mind are Rapture, um, uh, oh, what, what was that other one, um, Atomic, um, they're, the, they're the two that spring to mind. Um, wow. Yeah, but there were there were several. I mean, we'd be they'd be bringing out three or four a year. So, yeah. and were were Debbie or anyone else in the band involved in that creative process, or was, did you have free reign? Yeah, uh, we had a lot more free reign than usual, actually. But Debbie Harry did used to come and cast an eye over what we were doing, and would she didn't used to say very much, but she would generally nod or shake her head, and and uh, that would give us a steer on on what we were doing. But uh, no, that, I mean, they, they were a delight to, her and Chris Stein were a delight to work with, really. Mm. More icons, you've worked with them uh, all day. <laughs> What's your name? So by 1983, the specials were no more and the Fun Boys were in begun conquering yeah. the charts, hadn't they? And it became a massive act. Yeah. The Farmyard Connection, I just wanted to talk to you about the cover of that because it's, yeah. it's such a strange cover and in in yeah. I wouldn't have known it was your work because no, it's, no. it's illustrator Paul, Paul Kemic, is it? Who's, whose work is... I can't, unfortunately, I can't remember his name. He's a fantastic illustrator. Yeah. And uh, the, the story behind that was it was a slightly unusual opportunity because... Um, it, it was only it, I, the brief to me was to produce a, a very quickly produce a single cover for the European market. So it wasn't it never it was never released in the UK. Um, and as I understood it, the bands were too busy to be involved in it. So it was a completely free reign. Um, so I took the you know the opportunity to do something very very different. <laughs> yeah. Involve involve Paul in it. Um, I mean it does it. You know, it doesn't look like it fits with the other no. three material. It's true, but as I say, it was a it was a very modest release. Now, I'm sure the I Am What I Am sleeve by Gloria Gaynor isn't one of your favourite pieces. <laughs> and it seems sort of to, to really stand out as an artist that seemed different to everyone else yeah. as well. How, how did that come about? Well, that, funnily enough, I mean, there's a lot of the... You're showing me a lot of sleeves on your iPad and there's a lot of them that send a shudder through. <laughs> and that, that, I don't like that one particularly, <laughs> but I did really like the track. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um... And it was a big hit, of course. Mm. Uh, but the way it came about was that I, by the time I produced that record cover, I'd left Chrysalis. So right. I'd left Chrysalis to set up a studio with some friends of mine. But I was still on a, on a what's it called? Um, a retainer? Uh, a retainer. I was still on a retainer for Chrysalis. And they would give me mainly two-tone stuff, but they would also give me other odds and sods like this one. And I just remember that this had to be produced in record time and there were no photographs. The press shot hadn't been done at that 
point, so there weren't any photographs available, and I was just asked to come up with something, and I did. And I think I was given a day to do from start to finish. I love, though, that... Um and it's always the case when I interview people that they do shudder when you show them certain things and many people have actually conveniently forgotten about certain pieces of work. But even with this one, you can see the, the influence of kind of Reed Miles and the Blue Note graphic style. Yeah. There's, you can see well, that in there for, you know, it's yeah. definitely got that vibe about it. Which Was that an influence on you generally? Because you could certainly see it later on with the House Martin stuff. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, the, the, two, the, um, uh, the Blue Note uh, covers were a huge influence. I like a lot of designers I had the book I put them all in and um, it was like a bit of a bible um, uh, but also we all had the books on people like Jan Tischel the typography yeah. we all, you know we all kind of had the same but um, a lot of the uh, imagery that I um, used uh, you know over the years was, was gleaned from second hand books so I used to haunt, uh, haunt these I had a, there was a number of really good uh, second hand bookshops that I used to go to and I could get these fantastic old Penrose albums and things like that and um, they were an absolute gold mine of, of imagery and typography and devices and whatnot. Yeah. and so a, a lot of the you know particularly the House Martin stuff would come out of these Penrose albums and the other books that I'd collected You know some people say money talks and people mumble money starts and Money to feed some and starve others Money to live in a warm And no money to die in the cold Far to be able to do these things Far to be able to do these things It's so hard Before we get on to the, the stuff with House Martins and some more of those, I was going to say newer acts, but they're not new, are they? It's the 90s and 80s. I want to dig around a little bit more in the, in the depths of your portfolio and talk about Matt Fretton because I think no, most people won't even remember him but he was slated to be the next big thing and he was on the cover yeah. of Smash Hits and Chrysalis invested so much money and he kind of yeah. came and went really quickly but you yeah, did all the graphics yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Louis, the, that was one of the exciting things about that time working at Chrysalis was that they would sign people and they would invest money in, you know, they'd put money behind their their faith mm. in I mean a, a really good one was was Billy Idol because he was um, they, there was Generation X which was on Chrysalis and they split up and then Billy Idol they, the, the Chrysalis felt they could make him a big star and they invested a lot of time and money in it and he, he did become a big star yeah. it was great um, and, I, and I do I don't remember a huge amount about Matt Fred and I do remember him being a really nice guy and company spending quite a lot of time in the art department when we were working on the on the graphics um, but as you say it never went anywhere and of course no. for every Billy Idol there was a few Matt Fretton as you say so, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean of course the, the exciting thing was you never knew you, mm. you know Matt Fretton could be like Robbie Williams now yeah. like, you just don't know so yeah. um, it's such a fickle fickle world in the music because suppo- I saw him supporting Depeche Mode you know when they were on the on the Ascendance. It was, yeah. you know, he was he was a high profile artist, but yeah. it felt like just as it was beginning, it all ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, yeah, I can't remember them fizzling. I don't really remember him a lot actually, so I can't really say. But the Billy Idol sleeve that you did was that for uh, Dancing with Myself.
direction and the mirror's reflection I'm a dancing all with myself And when there's no one else inside In the crowd and lonely night yeah, again, I did a number of sleeves. I, I, I never, all, again, all the album covers were done in Los Angeles because I think at that time he was living there. I can't remember now, but I did do a number of, of, of the singles covers as well. Uh, and he did used to come into the, the art department. Um, yeah. So. Was he the rebel that he yelled about? He was, <laughs> he is, or was, or is, a lovely, lovely guy. Um, uh, a really you know really nice to work with very yeah how can I put it very professional it was great I remember um, he, he'd come to the art department for to look at some designs and when we finished looking at the designs he had another appointment but he had an hour to kill so we went to the pub round the back and uh, it was quite full and um, uh, you know I went and got the drinks sat down and when I, as I sat down there was somebody talking to him wanted his autograph and the person went, I said, does that really annoy you? And he said, no, no. He said, the worry is if it, if it doesn't, when it doesn't happen, that's the worry. <laughs> and I thought that was very level-headed, you know, what a wonderful attitude to have. Yeah. So that was just the, just before he broke massive and made it in the States. And, yeah. Yeah. That's he, right. He was yeah. like one of the superstars of the 80s, wasn't he? Well, I th- yeah, he was, and I think he was on the verge of being massive because the Chrysalis had all these ideas that he would be a film star as well, and that, I think there was a serious chance that that could have happened. I don't, th- I, I don't know if he was in any movies, but um, obviously that side never really took off. Mm. But he, I mean, he was perfect for that time because that's when the promo videos were really happening yeah. and he of course he suited those he was perfect for, for pop videos you see so what um, kind of involvement would he have had on with the sleeve did he help select the photograph or yeah, the typography or yeah they know? generally you know artists would come in and spend a long time going through the the, the press shoot as it was called so there'd be like either loads of contact sheets or transparencies on a light box and they'd have a highlighter pen and they'd spend a lot of time going through them. We'd maybe work out crops as well with a highlighter pencil. Um, and then they'd, you know, they'd like to see the finished design before it actually got artworked and went to print as well, mm. generally. Um, but I just remember it, at the time they were generally very busy with all sorts of other things, you know, um, interviews, making the videos and all. Yeah. So they would, they tended to, it was, you know, they'd come in, but you'd, it, you'd, sometimes it was a real rush. So this was still around the time of transfer lettering, wasn't it? All of the, this stuff. This is all kind of done yeah. with photocopiers and transfer lettering and things. Yeah, well, and yeah. We did, luckily, we didn't. Uh, yeah, it was the same time as. Um, it was definitely the time of P- PMT machines where we would in, enlarge and reduce the size of elements, but we didn't have to use Letraset anymore. That luckily, we, oh. we were able to. We had the budgets to use proper typeset we were able to use the very best typesetting companies who were nearby and they used to supply us with these wonderful big catalogues of all their fonts oh. and everything at all <laughs> different sizes it was it was a real joy um to work with them so and a luxury as well it was a luxury yeah um so yeah we, we didn't have to worry about anything like that but um it was a what was called the way the artwork was created so once say billy had signed off that Cover. The artwork was created in a, pro- a process that was called lick and stick. So it was literally a collage, a great big sheet of board, and at the same size of, of a 12 inch 
or a 20, it would be 24 by 12 inch. And it would be literally be a collage of all the elements glued down in various layers. And then they'd be marked up for the printer so they knew how to create the, the plates and make a proof for us to look at. Lots of sheets of tracing um, paper and masking tape. Yeah, and, that, and there was that plastic film, I can't remember what it's called now. Uh, but anyway, it was a slightly thicker than tracing paper that we, where you'd stick everything on. And then the proofs would come back, which was always really exciting, you know, time. I never got over the excitement of when the proofs came back in. And that would often be the point where the artists came back in a, a, again to check on the proof. Mm. Consequences, altered cases, broken noses, altered faces, my ego altered. Altered egos wherever I go, so does me go. Still in this period, the, the Funboy Three, um, their debut album, no, it wasn't their debut album, it was the second album actually, wasn't it? Waiting. Yeah. Um, very simple typography. What would yeah. your involvement be with some of that? Were you art directing by that point, or were you just what was your creative uh, input there? No, I think I, 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 I was, I primarily did the graphic design on this one. The the photographs were um, uh, were designed devised by the band themselves. So that the idea of having a bench and on the cover on the front there to be waiting by this bench and then on the back um, the bench is empty so it appears that they've gone um, that I can't take any credit for that that was all down to them um, uh, so it was mainly a, a graphic design exercise that particular cover but the bands themselves would have come up with that concept yeah yeah they would have yeah definitely yeah. right yeah so were they because you did quite a bit of work with with the Fun Boy 3 around that time, would that be true of, of all of their sleeves? Are they very sort of creatively invested in them? No, not, no, it varied. Uh, it varied. Um, so some of the singles covers I, I would have got a relatively free range on. Um, of course, I've got... A, my brain's gone blank now. I can't think which ones those would be. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it would vary, and a lot of it would, you know, quite often the bands would be away on tour and there'd be something would need to come out, so a single would need to come out, and so they wouldn't be available to be involved in it. Mm. I can't remember if that happened in their case, but it varied. Everything, you know, if they had the time, the bands generally liked to be involved in, in the way it was produced. So the special AKA, and you were talking earlier about your working relationship with Jerry Dammers, um, yeah. working with him on uh, so the, the, with the singles for Racist Friend and Nelson Mandela, obviously, which was huge. Yeah. Again, that will have been created in collaboration with him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can still remember him because by this time I'd left and I had a studio on Tottenham Court Road. Sorry, I left Chrysalis, rather. And I had a studio on Tottenham Court Road and he used to come in almost daily because I was still 
producing a lot of two-tone material at that time. And I just remember with the Nelson Mandela single, I, I, a terrible, I'd never heard of Nelson Mandela, but of course it raised awareness mm. right across the world, the, the record. Um, but I just remember him coming in with, and he, all he had was a black and white photograph, which was this, a much, that's a very much cropped into it of Nelson Mandela. And we were, we, the two of us wanted to make a sleeve out of it. So again, I did, did a, you know, it's mainly a typographical exercise. Although I seem to remember that the back is quite an elaborate typographic exercise. There's a lot of... Yeah, it's very 60s looking yeah, with the back. Yeah, it's well, that would have come directly out of one of my Pen Penrose albums. I mean, that, that layout, yeah. or that, that look and feel rather would have come Because when you look at those early, those Beatles sleeves, you know, that the, the, they're very in that style as well. I wasn't sure if that was an influence, but I guess it was all the same kind of creative. It, it was mainly the... From my angle, it was a Penrose stuff, for, but from Jerry's angle, it was old. He had a huge collection of old jazz albums, um, and he particularly liked um, the albums that were sound effects, you know, these sort of awful sound effect albums. He, but the covers were amazing. And in fact, he went on to produce a book of, of these covers, which oh. I've got, of the, you know, the sound effect album covers. <laughs> So he would come in, oft, you know, he'd often come in with half a dozen of these covers and we'd use those as a kind of a starting point for whatever it was we were working on. Lost in miles of burning sunshine Looking for a place to So just a little bit more obscurity before we go on to some of the the, the more uh, well-known acts. Yes. You worked on with uh, Fraser Taylor of The Cloth on the cover yeah. of the Impossible Dreamers right. single. Yeah. Would, how would that work? Would would you do the typography and he'd fit the painting around that or was it vice versa? No, you... in that, I remember working on it with Fraser and in that particular case, he came up with that beautiful painting and I it was my challenge to fit the typography on it in a way that didn't, you know, it's just all the, the power of the painting still you know, survived, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but it could occasionally work the other way around and, you know, sometimes I'd, I would, if I was working with an illustrator, I would work out a layer and the type and then tell them where the, I, where, you know, where I wanted the image to be and what's roughly what size it would need to be mm. and that sort of thing. So it kind of, it sort of varied. But I do remember distinctly working with Fraser on that. It's tricky when, as, as a graphic designer, when you're working with a photographer or an illustrator, because sometimes the right thing to do is just give the cover the whole photograph full bleed and just, you know, do the yeah. typography really small. But then it feels kind of unsatisfying as a graphic designer to just... I mean, Peter Saville took it to the extreme, didn't he, with no typography? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the way that that was really it wasn't really an option. I mean, it would 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 have been nice in some cases to do that, but it wasn't really an option because um, one of the the things that I've left out of the, that I forgot in the process is that the marketing department had to sign everything off as well, um, and they quite rightly felt that the 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 bare minimum had to be the artist's name and the and the and the title of the record, mm -hmm. and it always had to be in the top third, because of the way that albums were displayed in shops. Yeah. So that was um, 
a given, which I'd actually forgotten about until we've started to talk about it. Um, but that was that was always the way it had to be. Okay, so jumping to the, no, in fact, the same year, 1985, you started working with the House Martins on their, their first single, Flag Day. Yeah. Again, very sort of, the, the design style we were talking about earlier, very, very sort of 60s-ish, bold graphics, but very sort of pure and clean and... How, how did yeah. that aesthetic develop? Well, that was um, that's one that I, 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 I can take credit for because I was approached by their manager, Andy MacDonald, who was also the manager of Go Discs, their record, uh, and said he'd signed this new band. He didn't know... They didn't have any sort of visual image what, whatsoever. Could I listen to these white labels and come up on these cassette tapes or whatever it was and come up with some you know, proposal, some sort of idea. And he said, the only steer I can give you is that they asked me to speak to you because they love all the two-tone material. So I knew we were looking at block type, you know, um, yeah. big letters, big big fonts and all the rest of it. No serifs um, allowed. No serifs allowed. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of that. I mean, I don't, yeah, no serifs allowed. Um, and... Um, Again, I just went to my 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 uh, Bible, which was the the Pen, Penrose albums, and just um, looked at various ideas that I felt fitted in with that very loose brief, and that's what that, that's how the, all the graphics came out. And who is that? I mean, the the photographer's credited as Russell Boyce, but who who yeah. is the old man with the flat cap? Well, it's a long time ago, but I seem to remember some somebody that Paul Heaton knew, or I think Paul Heaton had supplied the photograph in in any case, um, but I can't remember for sure. But again, it just seemed like the perfect fit with that particular track and the ethos of the track as well. Yeah, because their style through through everything that you did was so. I don't know, it's like you developed a, a, an, a brand identity for the band through the use of those blocks of colours and that typography. It was a really strong look. Well, yeah, that was, the, well, the, that was certainly the plan, was to do for them what, what had been done for Two Turn. And I was very fortunate because I got to... Uh, my point of contact with the band was Stan Cullimore, who, from memory, I think he'd actually been to art college. So uh-huh. we had a... A very good working relationship and um, we were able to you know uh, sort of nudge designs in a direction that everybody was happy with and sort of refine them so that they were just right um, so that was just a cap- happy happy uh, event really There's a playfulness about the images as well, isn't there? As much as there was a lot of social commentary in, in their songs, there's a definite sort of ironic playfulness about these record covers. I mean, just looking at the sleeve of, of Sheep, 
Yeah. Uh, it's such a brilliant photograph. Yeah, well, again, that, that was, I remember now, that was me trying to capture the, the character of the band because the band, although their music was serious, if you, you know, had serious messages, um, they weren't serious. They were, um, they were a laugh and a joke, basically. Um, and and I, so I wanted to reflect that in the way the graphics look. Mm. And where did that image come from, specifically the, the sheep image? Well, that's a collage that I made of images from the, the, the library I was talking about, Barnaby's Picture Library. I went in there and, and rummaged through hundreds of boxes and found all these different characters and collaged them together. Even the dog was a separate photo. Which is quite um, ambitious, creatively, for 1985, because it's just, just computers just yeah, coming in. Yeah, exactly, it was. It, yeah, it all had to be... The pictures had to be made exactly the right height, then I had to cut them out, and you could never get rid of the cut marks. So that was then... It was then re-photographed, and a professional retouch, you would take out the little grey lines that were... And then it could go off to be proved. I don't miss those days. Just staying with the, with the House of Martins, just to look at a few of the, yeah. the, of the examples. So the, the Happy Hour cover, can you tell me yeah. a bit about that design, how that came together? Yeah, I, I remember that one was one of the, again, was done in a rush. So you never knew how long you had to produce the thing. It was all to do with factories being booked to press the records, and then you'd work the... The work, the production department would work back from then and tell you how long you had to produce it. And I seem to remember that was done very, very quickly, but it, it was a very happy uh, uh, process because the, 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 the nature of the tracks, to me, uh, suggested this whole idea of a, a corp, you know, corporation with these people, bored people who were looking forward to Friday night and going out and on, the, on the lash, you see. Uh, and I wanted to come up with some imagery that said corporate and, and uh, timid people on the lash. And, and I, I got so into it that I didn't, as you, what I'd normally do is, is three or four alternative ideas for a sleeve to show to the band. But in this case, I think there was about a dozen and they couldn't decide. So in the end, we, they, uh, about six or seven were chosen and they were used for different different things so there was like a picture disc came out with one image on a uh, single cover came out with one Im image and then there was an alternative single cover as I remember it right with a different image on it and then another one was used on the poster so it was a it was a lovely thing to to, to it was a lovely project in yeah that a lot of design yeah. decadence yeah yeah it was it's funny as well when you look at a, a body of work for a band because with the House Martins it feels like with with the colour palette, it looks like you used every... So you've got the kind of cyan and yellow, and then you've got green on the album, and you've got peach on that one, and then you've got... It feels almost like you've ticked each colour off in the, in the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were all, they were all again, that, you know, inspired by that sort of 60s Penrose thing where we... And they were kind of what you might call old-school tie colours. So they were, it was a, there was a sort of logic to the palette. But if you imagine at that time... Um, the what what else, what the other music that was coming out was was 
the covers were very colourful mm. and, and the pop promos were over, you know, well over the top, um, dripping with glitz. And um, so in a way, it was a, quite a nice counterpoint to that, you see. Yeah. Yeah, the mid-80s, you tend to think of, I don't know, the Thompson Twins and Howard Jones and sort of post-Live Aid, all that sort of super glamour that was being influenced by the the American market was starting to come into the UK charts a lot. Oh, yeah. And it influenced yeah. not just the music, it was all about yeah. kind of the Dallas and Dynasty dynastification of pop music if that's a, a word <laughs> yeah well it, yeah it was a funny time because the thing that i've made used to make me cringe with those pop promos they were all sort of, even i mean if you look at them now of course they look diabolically awful but that to me then they looked the excruciating mm. um, i don't know why that should have been but maybe it was because it was in the early days of of it i don't know yeah but everyone succumbed to it. You know, you artists like Billy Idol who'd been underground or even Alison Moyer who'd come through Mute Records. And they all became these super glamorous pop yeah. icons. You know. <laughs> Where's the house, Martin? Yeah. They did one in, in Plast... They, they did one in Plasticine Figures. I can't take any credit for that, unfortunately, but they did a, a wonderful promo for one of their tracks that was animated Plasticine Figures. It was really good. Yeah, very anti-pop. yeah. So the album cover for London Nil Hull 4, that, yeah. that's just pure blue note graphic design, isn't it? I, yeah, I guess it is. It, it, well, it is, no question about it, yeah. The ultimate simplicity. Um, but funny enough, with, with you probably know yourself being a graphic, having, you know, being a graphic designer, that sometimes the ultimate simplicity takes a lot of work to yeah. actually, because everything's got to be right, everything's got to be in balance yeah. uh, for it to look acceptable if you know what I mean mm. and that can can be quite a challenge um, yeah and how how involved would the band have been with the album or were they just busy recording and that you'd be left they, to get on with it, it I only d- dealt with Stan so Stan would have been very involved at all every every aspect of the album cover and also uh, Andy McDonald the manager as well who you know, again, was a joy to work with. So it was, it was working for the House Martins was fantastic. Okay, so moving on to 1987, and you did some work for the Lars. Now, there's obviously some computer involvement here, very early software, or is this just no. playing with a photocopier and it stretching images? Playing with a photocopier. <laughs> it was the first time I'd done it, and um, I was pretty pleased with the, with the effect. The Lars, in my view, should have gone on to be a huge band. Mm. They're absolutely brilliant. And their first album, in fact, it might have been their only album, I can't, I can't remember now, but it's absolutely fantastic. I still listen to it now. Um, but for some reason, they never got the traction that they needed to become famous. I I've no idea why. Um, I, you know, I was I again. They were they were managed by Andy McDonald's at GoDisc. So again, I got the same call. Could I come up with some sort of a visual identity for this new band? And again, there was at that right at the start, there were no photographs of the band. So it was. Um, it's the question of coming up with some sort of graphic idea. And what is going on in that in that cover? I can't quite make out what what it's, that is. It's looking up a spiral staircase, ah. uh, and 
these are meant to be kind of phantom figures out there. Right. <laughs> but I wanted the idea that the lettering was being sucked up this sort of vortex, so that's why the lettering is distorted in that way. Right. Um, and the original, the actual cover itself is got metallic ink on the letters, silver, link, silver ink. So that was lovely, you know, the way it used to catch the, the, the light. And were they involved at all with, with this leaf? No. I never met the last, unfortunately. When I'm feeling blue, all I have to do is take a look at you. Then I'm not so blue. I'm going to dig back into um, something you mightn't want to talk about, but it's an important record because it was a big hit. <laughs> but Phil Collins, a groovy yeah. kind of love. Yeah, I mean, I, as you can imagine, that if I, I designed, I would, during the 80s, I would have designed hundreds of covers and a small number of them I'm very proud of, but there's a lot that I'm not. Um, and, uh, but I didn't have, you know, I didn't, it was the sort of job that I had, I didn't really have a choice, so I might be working on, you know, I like I really liked working with Ian Anderson, but I didn't like Jethro Tull's music. But I still had to work. And same with Leo Leo Sayer. Leo Sayer's a lovely lovely bloke to work with, but I didn't like particularly like his music. Don't like Phil Collins' music. Um, uh, Julie Walters is great though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I I think it was more from memory. I think it was a typographic thing. I was sent this. I, I think this was on Island Records because I was, by this time I was working for most of the other major labels as well as a freelancer. And from memory, I think this was Island Records, and they sent me some transparencies. And I thought, well, this one really lends itself to some this, this sort of central typography. Yeah. And then it just became a typographic exercise essentially. That white strip along the top, though, again, very 60s oh, thing yeah. to do. Oh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, well spotted. That's <laughs> straight out of the blue note. Yeah. yeah. And then there was a there was a big break for you then. You, that was when you started exploring more fine art stuff by, no. by the 90s? No, Did you, you... no, what happened was... Go on. <laughs> I had a... There was, an inter, there was something in between, you see. So uh, by this point, when um, in the late 80s, everything was going... In, it was becoming, uh, you know, 13 centimetre square CDs mm. or 12 centimetre, whatever it is. Um, and I was sort of losing impetus, uh, running out of ideas. And I had an opportunity to move sideways into doing corporate art. So I was doing, not corporate art, corporate design rather. So I was designing logos for for almost 10 years i was designing logos and it could be for banks or building societies or anything right. like that um and i you know the money was good i was i was freelancing for most of the big design companies in london so it was quite good in that respect but my heart was never in it and i was you know i, I wasn't very good at it either but I, that's what i did through the 90s and it was only at the end of the 90s where i really got an opportunity to go back to my first love of painting and I've, I've been a professional art a painter for the last over 20 years the playground It was 
nice to kind of to link it back to the record sleeve design in in twenty fourteen. You were able to come back into the music industry yeah, yeah, with the right. the cover of um, What Have We Become by yeah. Paul Heaton and Jackie, Jackie Abbott. Abbott. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and I did. Yeah, which was lovely. I just got a call from uh, Paul's manager um, out of the blue, and could they use this painting of mine? Paul had fallen in love with it, and I said, Yeah, of course, that'd be wonderful. And um, I did the the next album was one of my paintings as well. I can't remember the title. Wisdom, laughter, and lines. That's right. Yeah, that was one of my paintings as well. So that was wonderful to be to get back involved in that respect. Yeah. So I I imagine that they had come to you to commission the painting. So that's no. not not supposed to be them or anything. It's just no. But I think that's why Paul liked that particular painting was because it could be them. You see. Um, and I just remember one, one wonderful thing was that they, because they, uh, the two lovely people, and they have got this wonderful warm rapport with their fans. And what, when the album came out, they ran a competition on, I think it was Facebook, to, for their fans to recreate the cover. <laughs> and uh, they, there was the most wonderful, loads of them did, and they were the most wonderful things. So the two that stood out, one was Marzipan, so they'd made the figures in the room, <laughs> and the other one was Lego. Somebody made the whole, the whole thing out of Lego. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it must be nice to see your artwork come well, alive. Some. Yeah, and to, and to know that people can respond to it in that way was wonderful as mm. well, so. It's it's great because there's that sort of visual ambiguity there, isn't it? That it could be anybody, and that that is the same with the previous one as well. That, that sort of slight blariness. Yeah, well, I feel that I've succeeded with with my paintings if somebody is able to project their own narrative on it, and I love it when people tell me what their idea is of what's going on in the painting or who that person is. It's it's wonderful for me because it really brings it to life. Was it exciting? All those years later, seeing your artwork, because by this time, vinyl has come back. Yeah. Everything's yeah. gone 12-inch square again, so yeah. was it exciting for you to actually see your art on a record sleeve again? It was, it was. It was very exciting, I must admit. Um, yeah, and just being in, you know, involved in it, all the cut and thrust of talking to the record company, which I think was Virgin at the time. Um, you know, that, all that side of it was, was fun as well. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. So now you are an established fine artist based here in, in Hove. Uh, how can people see your work? What's the best way of people, if they want to find you online? Uh, well, there's my, my, probably the easiest thing is my website, which is davidstoryartist.co.uk. And from there you can, there's I think five or six galleries that represent me in summer painting. So, but you could find them all via the website. Um, and do you do social media? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got an a, a Instagram feed and a Facebook feed as well. Right, yeah. so people can find you there. Yeah, and there's links on the website to both of those. Uh, Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, David. I hope thank it wasn't you. too uh, traumatic digging back to the bottom of your portfolio. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. The music that you can hear in the background is called Sitting in the Park from an album of the same name a 1988 album that David designed the cover for. Just a couple of points of clarification. I made a mistake about Madness. I said there were eight members and at their maximum there were only ever seven and then six and then they lost members and gained members along the way. 
The noises that you could hear in the background were seagulls. Uh, that happens when you're interviewing somebody on the south coast of England, where David's studio is. So there was nothing I could do about that, unfortunately. I mentioned at the start of this podcast that the episode is a supplement to an article I've written for Classic Pop magazine. That would be a great place to actually have a look at a lot of the things that we talk about in this interview, although there are some things in that that aren't in this and vice versa. Links to David's work can be found online, but I've put links to that on my website at softoctopus.co.uk. And finally, if you want to stay in touch, join the Facebook Art On Your Sleeve group and I'll hopefully see you online soon.